coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. We talk about the first trailer for Star Trek Discovery, a couple of celebrity deaths here out in uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan, the new project starring Chowden fan Aaron Kwok, and our films this week, Derek Kui's This Is Not What I Expected and Han Han's time travel comedy, Duckweed. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida. And coming to us from his humble abode back in the Fragrant Harbor still is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hello, everyone. How are you doing, sir? Doing all right. Yeah, staying um, busy? Wrapping up, uh, yeah, really busy. Wrapping up a bunch of freelance work. Um, well, actually... Wrapping up the most packed of my freelance work, I still have other stuff um, I have to write next week. But uh, finally, kind of relaxed, and I finally watched uh, Guardians of the Galaxy uh, second time last night, and actually stayed awake through the entire thing. And I did not realize how prominent that Fleetwood Mac song is until I saw it second time <laughs> because I I missed it both times they used it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, I'm not sure I'm ready for a second sit down of that um theatrically but i I do i am kind of jonesing to see it again um once it hits video did you see it in imax or 3d or anything special or what would be your recommendation for viewers who haven't seen it yet well i saw it straight up regular 2d um and honestly i am not a big fan of 3d and, but I have heard good things about the uh, 4DX presentation. Uh, 4DX is the one where you have the moving chairs that moves along the motion because there are quite a lot of space battles in the film. So I think 4DX seems to be a good good way. And uh, I'm not sure about the 3D presentation, but uh, I saw it both uh, both times I saw it, I saw it in 2D, and they looked perfectly fine to me. All right, excellent. I myself have been uh, jonesing away the hours hooked on Terrace House. So thank you very much for that, Mr. Ma. Um, our household has quite gotten hooked on this reality TV series. And I got to say off the bat, I'm not a huge reality TV person. I never got into the Survivor thing. The only sort of reality show I ever spent time watching was uh, uh, Duck Dynasty. And that just because I think the guys are goofy and, and silly and the show makes me laugh. Um, but I never liked Big Brother. I, I just have never been into that. But this show has really captured my attention, and I think we mentioned last time, because it's back sort of in that feel of the shows that sort of predated all the current reality TV, and more specifically, um, some of the MTV stuff, um, like Real World, where where I think this kind of originated from, though there might be some outliers that predated Real World a little bit. Um, and I've gotten addicted to the show, and, and so has my wife. And we started out with um, Aloha State just because it was something that popped up in my Netflix queue as a recommendation for I guess you know Netflix knows through my choices now that I tend to watch a lot of Asian stuff and so they popped it up there and then I remember asking Kevin what was up with it and so we started watching it primarily because I'm I really like Hawaii and shows that are centered around Hawaii and it just sucked us in so we quickly finished out Terrace House, Aloha State, which is sort of the current season that's running, and right now it's in the middle. Kevin understands a little bit more about how this airs than I do. I was kind of reading up on it on Netflix, so the way they put it up on, uh, or sorry, on Wikipedia, but the way they put it up on Netflix is that they've broken it into sort of a part one and part two, which is all kind of the same season, and there's only like eight episodes in each each part so far. 
But as they air them in Japan, I guess, do they air on Netflix first or do they air on regular TV first, Kevin? Well, it, this project was a collaboration between Fuji Television and and Netflix. It was, it was originally a uh, a Fuji Television production, so the first season, uh, which is not available on Netflix, only available on Netflix Japan, I think. That was uh, a Fuji TV production, and if uh, to when when Netflix launched in Japan, they worked with uh, Fuji Television was their first uh, partner. And one of the first uh, projects was the second season of Terrence House, which moved the house to back to Tokyo. Um, and that was that was the second season of the show, Boys and Girls in the City. And then um, they now they're now running Aloha State, uh, which is the third season. And these Netflix episodes, they're released week by week on Netflix. Uh, and then I think two weeks later, they're aired on Fuji TV at, on uh, late night. But uh, I think any any obsessive fan would would go and and be watching it uh, on Netflix uh, week by week. Right. Uh, and um, but globally, be- even though it's weird, because um, apparently I, I read because I, I read the subreddit, <laughs> the subreddit for the show. Um, they say that actually in Japan the show also the shows are also English subtitled, but Netflix have uh, has chosen to only release them by batches for the rest of the world for for some reason. Wonder why that is? Because it's like. You know, it's like I wish I'm kind of wishing I had a VPN that could break through to Japan, like so we could, so we don't have to wait. Because yeah, we're we're like stuck waiting. Even though there are new episodes out, I guess they're going to wait until this next batch finishes out at eight episodes or however many they're going to do before they release the block. So we've since gone back to watch um, Terrace House Boys and Girls in the City, and so we're into. I guess midway into the first batch, which is good because it's a longer batch. I, those those batches are about eighteen episodes each. Um, but I think the general consensus so far is that we're still we we like the kids over on Aloha State a little bit more. Maybe that's really? a bias because they break into English really? every once in a while and and like my wife was saying, oh the guys the guys in in the Tokyo house are so paternalistic and and so you know patriarchal and and everything and but it's it's good the funny thing for me is when i first started watching it um the so what they have is is they have cameras set up and you know kind of like they did on real world and they do on big brother but then they have these commentary hosts who i guess have been with the series from the get-go um because it's pretty much the same host the youngest host kind of switches out um they have like a young rising star host but there are so in the house, there are three boys and three girls um, for for the series to kind of, you know, pair them off. And for the hosts, there are also three male hosts and three female hosts. And usually the youngest so far has been like this rising uh, popular star and the others are a bit older. Um, and at first they kind of annoyed me. I was like, no, get back to the house. I don't want to hear your commentary. I want to see, you know, what's going on. But over time... I started to really warm up to the hosts because uh, th- they're pretty funny in their commentary. And apparently, Kevin, you told me that they actually have a running commentary while the episode's going on. Is that correct? Yeah, because they watch it and then they make the commentary. And I think uh, so. The first, the first season, which was set uh, south of Tokyo, it started with a single, single host. Um, it, it's the uh, the woman with the hoarse voice. Uh, mm. She's called you. Uh, she was the original, the only host of the show. And then, as the show kept going, they added. Then they added a second commentator, which is the girl next to her, uh, mm-hmm. the cute one, the young one, the model. Uh, and then, as time went by, it got more and more popular. They started adding more people on that panel. And so, at the beginning of the second season, that's actually um, the evolution of that first season of the panel. The first season, they added more and more people along the way. And, and for the second season, once they got on Netflix, they they sort of just grew into this huge panel of six people. But, um, yeah, and then I, I think eventually when people, when they, I guess this panel, people start, started getting more popular and people liked their commentary. Nef, uh, Netflix, I think mean, even Fuji TV actually started uh, putting their, their comment, running commentary on a second audio track, which Netflix has carried over. Um, and they didn't do that until, I think, Aloha State. I think I'm not sure, but it, it, at the beginning, I didn't see that running commentary track. But at this point, actually, I because I do speak some Japanese, uh, I I found their commentary so amusing that, and I found the Aloha State character so so boring <laughs> that I started 
See, this is the thing. Most fans of Terrence, Terrence House, and I think actually 99% of the Terrence House fans, they all prefer the Tokyo cast better than the Hawaii cast. They all thought that the Hawaii cast is super boring. Mm. Because that, that, that's because you're, you're only halfway through the, the, the second season because it gets so much more interesting. Um, I'm not sure what episode you're on. but uh, Yeah, well, I think we're on episode seven or eight because it's like 18 okay. episodes for that first block. So yeah, we're just well, about the halfway point. And... Well, season two, season two is 46 episodes long. And it gets oh, so a lot more. Longer. Inter- okay, yeah, right. So it gets a lot more interesting in the second half, and and then the commentary. Because I think through the commentary, you start understanding how normal Japanese people react to these people, or how they react, and the way they react sort of represents how Japanese people would view the show and how they view the characters. You know, certain things that we we think maybe like it's a bit weird, they would actually find it. They would actually have a different sort of point of view. Yeah. on it. For example, there's like a bento episode in Aloha State. There's a bento thing where the guy takes a girl on a date, and then he, the first thing he does is he he demands the girl makes him a bento box. Yeah, right. I, mean, I told my friend who is Japanese American, by the way. He's like, and I'm like, this is weird. What what the? Why would a guy ask? Well, what, what would a guy do this? And the girl would be like, yay. But you know, the, the end of the commentary actually, they they stay. They don't find anything wrong with that, which yeah. is really odd. But that sort of says a lot about Japanese culture and how. You know, dating or relationship yeah. goes in Japanese culture, and and I find that more interesting than the actual character. So I have it actually. I have to run in commentary on while reading the subtitles for the dialogue. The one thing I will say that is I find disappointing about the show is that for some reason my favorite characters seem to leave quick, <laughs> and I don't know. I, it's like the characters that I identify and latch onto the most. They're 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 the ones who end up saying you know coming. Oh, I'm gonna go, and I got a little bit of a spoiler on the current second season with one character who I already really like and I was reading and I accidentally read a spoiler and I know she's gone at some point. I was like, ah, you know, so now I've got to avoid reading stuff about the show Um, because, again, we're dealing with a show that's not... I'm watching a show that's not current. It's like from a couple years ago. But, again, it's uh, it's become an addiction and uh, I I have you to thank, Mr. Ma, so thank you (laughs) very much for expanding my horizons and... And getting me hooked once again on another reality TV show. Dude, at one point I was so like busy with work, but then me and my friend we were sort of competing who is getting to the farthest along the show, and I would just like sit and watch like four episodes in one go. And I never, I never binge watch TV, and that's how obsessed yeah, I was. Yeah, we're with we're we're at least a two episode per night because we've got like an hour after we put the little one to bed that we can either watch a movie or watch uh, Terrace House. And we have to at least do two episodes. Um, otherwise, <laughs> it's just not fulfilling enough. Because so. they go by pretty quick because they're only like, you know, about half hour in terms of, you know, running time. And, and they go by pretty fast. So uh, if you are out there and you are also addicted to Terrace House or you have some thoughts on it, either Aloha State or Boys and Girls in the City, or if you've watched from the beginning, you know, drop us a line and let us know. I know this is a little bit outside of the normal wheelhouse for films that we talk about but um you know it is out there on netflix and it's asian content and uh although terrace house aloha state is kind of in this weird kind of middle ground place but i still love it um but you know if you haven't seen it check it out see if it's for you and let us know what you think all right enough opining about our love for terrace house let us quickly get over to the news before we get into our reviews for this week so let me throw the talking stick back over to kevin at his news desk with this week's news Over here at the news desk, uh, what for some trailer park news? Uh, Paul, I, I, you marked that of the new trailer for the Star Trek, new Star Trek show has dropped? Yes, um, so this is Star Trek Discovery, which is another sort of um, release. It's coming through CBS All Access, which I guess is going to be their kind of online platform which I don't currently subscribe to and I may subscribe to just to watch this show. And I guess that's part of their strategy. Um, I'm not sure how, when this will be available on other platforms, but um, or if it's going to be available internationally. But this is pretty big news because uh, it's the first Star Trek TV series to run since the last one kind of floundered and failed, which was um, Enterprise. And we've since had a couple of the J.J. Abrams movies, which have sort of rebooted and, and created a new timeline for the whole thing. Um, and But the interesting thing about this, the reason why we're talking about this here, aside from my own sci-fi nerdiness, uh, is the fact that one of the headliners is Michelle Yeoh. 
um, you know, from Hong Kong cinema fame. She is going to be playing a captain, although I do not think from everything I've read, um, I don't believe she's the main character. Um, I think that her character feels like they're going to sideline her pretty quickly, maybe in the pilot or early on uh, in in the series. So, but I am still, despite that, very excited um, to see her associated with the Star Trek property now. Um, she's, you know, if, if you listen to our review last week, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, there's a possibility she may be going forward in our in a future um, other big franchise, which I'd like to see. But I'm very happy to see her, and I hope she has a bigger role than I'm expecting. I'm hoping to be surprised by this. But uh, knowing network TV, uh, I kind of feel like I know where this is going. Um, but there's potential problems with this, too, because it is in this weird, enigmatic period. It's a prequel to the original series and or the J.J. Abrams movies. So they have a tagline saying 10 years before Kirk and Spock and the Enterprise. Whether that's 10 years before Kirk gets his command, meaning that it's still set after the timeline shift in the J.J. Abrams movie. So if you remember that in that movie, they, Spock and the, the bad guys went back in time to when Kirk was being born and totally messed up the timeline, created this new timeline. So I'm not sure if this is happening during that period in the new timeline or if this is supposed to be truly a pure Star Trek happening 10 years before even Kirk was born um, in the old sort of original series timeline. So I'm interested to see where they place that. I'm kind of hoping it's the latter rather than the former myself. Uh, but nonetheless, I'll be watching it just to see Michelle Yeoh in some Star Trek action. Um, but it is very problematic because they're constraining themselves to this period of pre-original series characters, but post-Enterprise characters. And the world is already very well defined with regard to, you know, what alien powers are out there, like the Klingons, who they haven't met yet, like the Romulans and the Borg and things like this that have already been established. So because of that, um, you know, they, they're going to run into some tricky areas in terms of writing. Enterprise had this problem a little bit with retconning things and, and, um, reworking history that had already been established elsewhere and novels and, and other things. So they're probably going to run afoul of fans, and that's never a good thing because if you're going to run afoul of the traditional Star Trek fans, you lose them, then you're just based on the general audience, and that's going to be a hard sell because it's Star Trek. You know, people know the name, but I think they may have had enough of Star Trek over the years. So we'll have to wait and see how it does. Um, I'm still excited. Kevin, any excitement for you on this? I know you're not a big trek tv fan right i mean you've seen the movies yeah i've seen i've seen uh, i've seen the movies um i'm not sure i mean it just will be available so uh, outside of us and canada um 24 hours after the airing on cbs all access the show the the show will be available on netflix okay um in 188 countries across the world except for canada and the u.s sorry paul oh. um but <laughs> will i watch it? i mean actually i had no idea this is a prequel knowing that this is a prequel i might i might give it a chance but i have so many shows yeah. on my netflix queue right now is i don't know when i'll get started like i was actually pretty caught up with designated survivor which was on abc in america and it was on netflix every week because i started watching out curiosity and i and i kept going on it until the, the season break but now i have sort of moved on to other shows i don't know when i'll ever get back to it like um but i am i am kind of interested if it's any good uh i i might tune in after all all right we'll look forward okay. to our thoughts once the first episode drops okay we can stay here in trailer park a little bit uh today uh netflix sorry speaking of netflix netflix dropped the first uh full-length trailer for uh, Bong Joon-ho, Korean director who did uh, Snowpiercer and also did Memories of Murder and Mother, one of the greatest directors ever lived. Um, they dropped a trailer for his new film, Okja. Um, it's a fully financed Netflix production. Uh, the film premieres this week at the Cannes Film Festival, and it looks fan-freaking-tastic. Um, the film uh, stars, actually has a mix of Korean and U.S. Uh, American or Hollywood stars, sorry, um, or Western stars. Um, the film is about a... Uh, pig a super pig that is genetically engineered by a food company uh i guess it's kind of like a more eco-friendly um uh, alternative meat but the animal i guess escapes and escapes into the korean countryside and becomes friends with a little girl but when the uh 
when the pig is recaptured by the company, the girl uh, teams up with a bunch of animal activists to save the animal. Um, except the film is um, seems to be very... Uh, but let's say by the time one of the animal activists brings out a rocket, I was, like, cheering inside. Like, it just looks that good. Um, the film looks like a really crazy mix of what uh, the kind of humanistic uh, storytelling that Bong Joon-ho is, is very known for and also his very wild imagination uh, with a lot of great imagery and it, and it's set to this great Mamas and Papas song um, dedicated to one I love and it just looks like a real fun time. There's not exactly what you call a can film, but it's just that pedigree with uh, Bong Joon-ho. But yeah, the film looks incredibly fun and um, it goes on. It goes worldwide on Netflix on June 26th and it will have a limited theatrical release in the US, the UK, and Korea. So um, yeah, it, it, watch the trailer first on YouTube. It, it looks amazing. Um, so yeah. Paul, um, do check it out if you have the chance. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now. Um, what do we have? Uh, we have Tilda Swinton here, right? Uh, yes. Tilda Swinton that is uh, kind of, I guess, the Western headliner. Um, any any idea has- about her role in this? Is she like the, the heavy, the bad? She's the heavy. She plays the head of the food company. Mm-hmm. And you have Paul Dano showing up as a the animal activist. And so Steve Yoon from uh, Walking Dead. Uh, and Jake Gyllenhaal shows up in one shot, but the lead, the little girl, is a is a new actress, a new Korean, young, really young, young child. And uh, there's no big names from Korea, as far as I know. So it's a more uh, of a more of a Western mm. film. And again, it's fully financed by Netflix, a fifty million dollar production. And they gave they gave Bong Joon Ho almost ninety nine percent complete artistic freedom. The only thing that they asked of him is to shoot on digital rather, rather than film. But uh, otherwise, he got complete freedom. And and this is going to be odd. like let's see what happens when Bong Joon Ho finally because even in Korea he wouldn't get complete hundred percent freedom because he does have he does work with big conglomerates and chaebols and they do have finance CAs and you know stockholders um, so here he he is having like ninety hundred percent final cut complete freedom let's see what unbridled un unfiltered Bong Joon Ho movie looks like yeah I am super excited about this. All right, we will probably be covering that as soon as it uh, drops pretty soon, right? Yeah, and the reviews will come out uh, tomorrow in Cannes because the big uh, the press screenings should be happening either um, tonight or tomorrow. So, so we'll, 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 we'll find out how it is uh, in a couple of days. All right, excellent. A uh, bit of sad news now, right? Yes, um, two major stars in the uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong film industry passed away this past week. Uh, first, we have Yu So Chow. Uh, you may not heard of uh, Yu So Chow because she was mainly active in the 50s and the 60s. She is the daughter of a very renowned um, Peking opera master called Yu Jim Yuan. Um, mainly, he is the master of the Seven Fortunes, um, which included um, Samuel Hong and Jackie Chan and Yuan Biao and, and uh, Yuan Chao and Yuan Chiu. So he is the the teacher of many of the famous uh, martial arts actors that we see today. And as um, as his daughter, Yuso Chao, actually was like a big sister to to these guys um, when they were training under Master Yu. Um, And after she started uh, performing as Cantonese opera, she began uh, acting, I think, at the age of 20. And she starred in over 200 films. Uh, She was only active for about 18 years in the black and white Cantonese film world. Um, But she acted in over 200 films. 170 of those were old wuxia films, including uh, Buddha's Palm, where she... Um, she's actually a, uh, uh, a a partner of a screen partner of uh, Cho Tatwa, who was uh, again uh, who played I think Wolf. I mean, he was in Buddha's Palm, but he's also a very very famous sort of black and white era actor. Um, so after 18 years uh, as an actress, one of the top actresses of, of of Hong Kong, Hong Kong cinema, black and white cinema, and and uh, she was known as one of the, the greatest uh, action heroines um, ever in Hong Kong cinema history. She retired in 1968 after she got married, or after sorry, 1966 I think after she got married, and, uh, and then she moved to the United States um, with her husband, and then she spent the rest of her life there without um, any other acting appearance. Um, she died last week of pneumonia at the age of, um, sorry, I have to double check this, but, um, 
but uh, she she lived she lived in San Francisco for the rest of her life. She survived by her three children. Her husband, um, who was also a Cantonese opera actor, died in 1984, um, and Yu So Chow uh, passed away at the age of 88. Uh, 88. So uh, that's one. Uh, so if you watch a lot of uh, uh, if you're a fan of uh, old Hong Kong, sort of Hong Kong black and white. Cantonese cinema, you will likely encounter uh, the name uh, Yuso Chow. Um, the other um, big name, uh, it's over in Taiwan. Um, Zhu Ke Liang, who is uh, Taiwan's one of uh, most Taiwan's most popular comedians, um, passed away last week after a long uh, battle with colorectal cancer. Um, Zhu Ke Liang started um, as a writer director for a cabaret show. Uh, he was also um, a backstage assistant, I think. Uh, he started as a backstage assistant, a stage show, and then he, uh, he, he had a short time as an actor, and then he moved on uh, and worked in other small bit jobs for a while, and then he became a writer and director at a cabaret show in Kaohsiung. Um, but um, he was given a chance to host a show, and he became a sensation uh, in the region. And recordings of his cabaret shows uh, began being distributed uh, around Taiwan, and that made him... Um, wildly famous in the 1980s uh he was one of the top performers comedic performers in the 80s and the 90s until uh early 90s um he had uh, mounted such huge gambling debts um including you know with the underworld underworld figures they had to go into hiding he went to hiding for about six years and they had a brief comeback five years and they had a brief comeback and then he he left again for another 10 years uh, so in 2009, he um, he was discovered by a tabloid, Apple Daily, and then his his friends in the entertainment industry um, encouraged him to come back to the entertainment industry. So he made a huge comeback and became um, again a hugely popular comedian uh, and host of variety shows, uh, largely due to his use of uh, his 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 handling or his use of the Taiwanese language, um, which is hugely popular with um, the older generation, especially those outside of Taipei. Uh, younger people don't really speak the Taiwanese dialect anymore, at least willingly. Uh, so his humor really appealed to the generation, uh, that generation who who grew up with him, sort of watched his comedy in the 80s. But um, film, his film career, he, he actually did act in a few films during the height of his uh, back in the 80s. Uh, there was also a planned project with Joey Wang, but then that didn't happen because he was shot in 1988. And that, that, can't, that um, essentially killed the project. But um, anyway, his, his his film career actually kind of started in 2011 after his comeback. Um, he was in a Lunar New Year film called Night Market Hero. And that became a, a pretty huge hit. And he started doing uh, Lunar New Year comedies for the next couple of years. And they all became really huge hits. They were often the, the biggest, highest grossing um, uh, film of the Lunar New Year holiday. So he sort of became a new staple, the new king of Taiwan Lunar New Year movies. Sort of like... Um, not Stephen Chow because Stephen Chow was kind of younger at the time, but if you imagine like this older comedian who you know <laughs> just becomes like who is like who is like the star of that period. Um, and his his Lunar New Year films actually have grossed uh, over thirteen billion Taiwan New dollars. So he became um, a huge figure in the Taiwanese uh, commercial film industry, even though his films um, were all pretty much um, dismissed by critics. He was still a very beloved uh, performer. Um, unfortunately, his his last film, uh, Hanky Panky, which came out uh, this year, um, performed below expectations, um, like all the other local local Lunar New Year films. Even though it was still the highest grossing film of the Lunar New Year holiday, the highest grossing local film of the holiday. So, um, a lot of. Um, um, words of condolences and, and lots of um, memories being passed around in, uh, in Taiwan right now among the among actors and especially those who worked the film over the years. Um, and uh, even though even I was not a huge fan of his films, he is a very important figure in today's Taiwan film industry. The fact that he still has that kind of draw, uh, especially for audiences outside Taipei, makes him one of the really important figure in that commercial film industry. So... Um, Sad news that Zhuge Liang uh, dead at um, age 70. Mm, too young. 70 is still too young. That's right. All right, our final bit of news this week. Project Gutenberg. Right. Um, yes, production has started. 
on a new action thriller called Project Gutenberg. This is the second solo directorial effort by director Felix Chung, who was the co-writer of the Infernal Affairs franchise, as well as the Overheard franchise. As main collaborator is director Alan Mack, who was the co-director of Infernal Affairs. And then with Overheard, Felix Chung got a promotion. He got a, he got a raise. He got promoted to um, a co-director. So uh, this is his second film after Once a Gangster in 2010. Um, and Alan Mack will be uh, stepping back. He will be serving as the quote-unquote artistic supervisor on the film. Um, anyway, the film stars uh, Aaron Kwok as a painter who gets recruited um, into a an elite counterfeit ring. Uh, headed by a criminal mastermind called Painter, uh, played by Chiron Fat. Now, um, uh, 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 disclosure, uh, for the interest of, I guess, full disclosure, uh, I actually just finished translating the full synopsis of the film a few days ago, uh, because it is, or last week, actually, because it was, uh, it's being sold now at the Cannes, uh, Cannes film market, but, uh, that log line is pretty much all I can reveal because that's all in the press because I don't I didn't get press release but I know the whole story, but that this this, this the log line that I just said is being what's being reported in the news so I can say that part of the story, um, but anyway the film just started production and is shooting in Hong Kong right now but it will also be shooting in I think Canada and other I think in China maybe and also another country, total can, four countries. Can, yes, can you, can you just give us I know. You know NDAs and everything, but can you just give us give us a an idea? Is this going to be a straight up drama action, or is it like a comedy, like Once a Thief, or is there any sense of the kind of genre they're aiming for? Well, the logline itself sounds actually quite serious, and it's been the film just started shooting last week, so so there is no real idea what the film's going to be like. Um, but from what I can tell, it's a serious, straight up heist movie mm. or heist not maybe heist movie but kind of a thriller kind of action film maybe action uh but as far as i can tell um it seems like it's going to be a serious film it's not going to be like once a thief it's it's going to be a straight up uh um uh serious straight face kind of uh crime crime film okay um and i think that's all we know um because like I said, even the people, the salespeople couldn't tell me much about the film other than the fact, you know, the store, what they gave me, because it was just starting to shoot last week. And when I first started working on it, the film hasn't even started shooting yet. So, um, yeah, there's not much else known about the film, but um, it's uh, planned for release in 2018, which I know sounds real tentative. No idea when in 2018, but there you go. All right. And... Uh... Has there been any confirmation on the Vegas to Macau four movie? <laughs> Even if I did, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be proud to tell anybody. You know, I know about that one. So, well, there was a poster. There was a poster at that was it Film Art. That's all I'm saying. That doesn't mean Film anything Art. at this point. But you know, exactly. So, all right. Thank you, Mr. Ma, for that uh, very interesting news wrap up this week. We'll be back after this musical interlude with our first review. This is not what I expected. And welcome back. So for our first e-screen review this week, uh, Kevin's going to take us through the latest Takeshi Kaneshiro film, This Is Not What I Expected. Yeah, This Is Not What I Expected actually is quite an apt title for how I watched my viewing experience, actually. Um, and, and it's a pleasant Pleasant. This is not what I expected. Anyway, the film is the directorial debut of Derek Quay, who's a longtime editor. He's uh, edited, I think, the last two Peter Chan films. Uh, and also, he's also worked with uh, Chen Kai Ge, so he's been around the industry for some time. Um, this is produced by Peter Chan. 
under his company We Pictures, and the film stars Takeshi Kaneshiro and Joe Dongyu. Now, the story: um, billionaire Lu Jin, played by Takeshi Kaneshiro, checks into a hotel in Shanghai to conduct acquisition research uh, for the hotel. Uh, he is dissatisfied with everything he sees, but the last-minute dish whipped by Gu Shenan, played by Zhou Dongyu, blows his mind. He starts ordering dishes from her, and she starts cooking for him. The two don't meet in person, but they actually share a mutual appreciation for each other. Yet, in reality, they're actually arch-rivals, whose every encounter is a catastrophe, until their identities are revealed by accident. Um, this is actually a very charming film. I didn't expect this from a first-time director, and and just the pedigree it comes with. I didn't expect it to be sort of this as funny or as as charming as it is. Actually, it it feels like a um a film by UFO, which was Peter Chan's company in the '90s that specialized in uh, a lot of these urban, contemporary urban uh, romantic comedies, uh, and has that kind of vibe. Um, it's been a long time since we've seen Takeshi Kaneshiro in a romantic lead role. Um, and I don't count um, perhaps love because that was um, not really a romance. That was really more like a breakup tale. It's, it's quite miserable and very little romance, very little real love in that film um, or very little bit of very little delightful rom-commy stuff in there. So um, I don't really count that one. So it's really good to see. Takeshi Kaneshiro just being sort of the dashing, handsome, rom-com male lead again. Um, by the way, I also don't count See You Tomorrow, the Wong Kar Wai film, because when he's not the lead, and, and that movie was just silly. That wasn't really... Again, there's no love in that film. So it's good to see him just sort of being the handsome Takeshi Kaneshiro that, that, that you know, people love him for. Um, jo Dong-yu is super lovable as the young chef. Um, but actually, the age difference do show um, it is a bit odd, even though I think Takeshi is only about 15, 16 years older than her. Um, I think we did this. We actually did this check uh, after the screening. Is I think it's less than 20 years. That's it's like 18, sure. 18. She's it's like 18. 25 okay. and he's like 43, I think. Right. But he does look a bit older and she does look a bit younger. So there is an age difference, a visual age difference there, and it kind of shows. Um, but yet there's pretty good chemistry between them. I think that's thanks to a very smart, uh, very ni- uh, delightful, sort of charming script that's whipped up by the, the female scriptwriters, and also very polished direction by Derek Way. Um, it's a very polished commercial film, um, and it's very pretty to look at, and, um, and it has that very contemporary, stylish sort of feel to it. Um, and and it makes for a very pleasant viewing experience. Now, the film is about food, but um, sort of about halfway, there's a twist that makes you realize that you should replace food with sex, and it's pretty easy to see what the film is about. Now, I don't want to go further at that point, because, again, if I reveal what happens at a point, then it's a really huge spoiler, but then it's that point where you realize what the film is really about and why that age difference exists. Um... But um, but to get, go again to go further on that spoiler, it is not there is no no Korean drama style twist. No one is no one's daughter or sister. There's nothing like that. Okay, so I'll just tell you that. But but like I said, once you replace food with sex, it's actually a very clever uh, a film. Um, there's one particular sequence that actually creates um, a sequence that involves blowfish that actually creates a more weirdo vibe than all of Nail Clipper Romance, which was supposed to be the one offbeat weird love story. And that says a lot about either how weak their um 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 was it Jason Kwan is as a director or how good Derek Way is as a director. I think it's more like the former, but um it's nice to see one Chinese film that actually pulls off that weird weirdness, at least even in one scene. Um Ultimately, it is a very light rom-com, and it doesn't really amount to much in the end, um, but it's still very enjoyable. I had more fun with it than the rest, the other people I went with, um, and, even though I did sleep, by the way. Sorry, I did sleep. I was very jet-lagged, <laughs> so I did sleep. But, but I enjoyed it while I was awake, which was most of the film, okay? 80% of the film, I was awake. Um, and I didn't miss the twist, so there you go. Uh, but it's interesting, because the way that Shanghai is captured... Um, it's, it's sort of done like this. So you have boutique hotel and it's sort of a cheek city and Shanghai is a pretty contemporary, contemporary 
you know, quite a fashionable city compared to Beijing. But for some reason, I just kept feeling the vibe that the film should be set in Taiwan. I mean, maybe because kind of Takeshi Kaneshiro is from Taiwan and he does speak with a bit of Taiwanese accent in the uh, in his dialogue. Um, but it feels like that's sort of because there's a lot of uh, display of you know rich you know the luxury luxurious life and even though that exists in Shanghai, the way that the boutique hotel is built and the way their the character live the characters live you know they bike and they take buses and things like that. That that life feels I would have that. And the, the way the palette looks, it feels more like it should be shot in Taiwan. I mean, forget Hong Kong. I mean, this film would never be made in Hong Kong because the market just isn't there. But it feels like the film should be set in Taipei, and I think that would have been easier on the eyes. But anyway, that's, that's, that's just a personal geographic observation. It won't matter to most people because, you know, foreign audiences who are listening to the show probably haven't been to Shanghai or Taipei anyway, so... We'll be able to tell a difference, but that's just a bit of um, personal observation. But anyway, the film is a very pleasant surprise. I didn't expect much out of it, um, just because how suddenly it came. Because it, it was, it, I think I didn't even know about the film about two months before uh, its release, and kind of came out of nowhere. But um, I enjoyed it quite a bit, um, even though I probably have forgotten half of it already. And uh, it's totally recommended for uh, fans of romantic comedies, especially fans of Takeshi Kaneshiro romantic comedies. Hmm. I, I'm kind of looking forward to this one, especially with uh, Zhou Dong Yu. But when I started to read your synopsis, I'm like, wait a minute, they're they're like a 20 year age difference. <laughs> What's going on? Is he is he becoming like a the the, the newest Andy Lau here, um, where he's going for you know they're going to pair him up with much younger girls? But if it works, I guess. That's all that matters on, in terms of their screen chemistry. So, but well, it I is do... very interesting. It is very interesting because they they don't deal with the that um, that idea of the age difference head on, but they they deal with it in another manner. And that mm. again, that is about revealing the twist. So I don't want to do that. But yeah, um, uh, they they kind of deal with it head on, but they also don't. So it's it, but it's interesting that but they don't ignore it. That's right. all. I so they say. they address it, and that's good. But yes. to go back to your earlier point on the replace food with sex thing. Is that your observation or is that something they actually get into in the movie itself? I wasn't very clear on that point. They don't say the word sex, but essentially it is. It, it, it's quite clear. Again, that okay. takes revealing the twist, but you can say love. I mean, China would say love, but mm. it's sex. Let's right. face it. It's sex. Yeah. And, and if they set the film in Taiwan, if it was a Hong Kong film or it was a, a Taiwan film, they would say sex. Right. And you, you do, again, make the allusion to the idea that this very much has kind of a UFO feel in some yeah. ways. So do you feel the hand of Peter Chan uh, prominently throughout, or is it more of just kind of a light element? I, I think it's done by someone who's a big fan of Peter Chan films. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's done by someone who's worked on Peter Chan films, like right. as the editor. So he plays a huge part in shaping Peter Chan's film. So so I wouldn't be surprised if if that influence rubbed off on Derek Ray while making the film. I'm not sure how hands-on um, Peter Chan is as a producer on, during production, but... Um, but if you just tell me, oh, it's because Derek Ray worked as, you know, Peter Chan's editor, I would totally buy that, buy that excuse as well. All right. Great. I'm looking forward to this one. If you've had a chance to get out and see it and or you get to see it later, do drop us a line. Let us know your thoughts on this is not what I expected. <laughs> And for our second film this week, another East Screen entry of sorts. Um, this week we're going to be talking about Duckweed, and this is not a new, new film, but a film that came out earlier this year. I think the release date was sometime in January, but it recently popped up on Hong Kong iTunes, and I got a chance to uh, watch it via that. It's not on regular iTunes or on Amazon, as at least at the time of this recording, but I expect it might be available on some of those platforms in the not-too-distant future. 
This film comes from director Han Han, starring Eddie Pang and Deng Chao. Uh, among others, I guess kind of Eddie Pang and Deng Chao are the big headliners. Uh, quite a few of the other actors are in not small roles, but they don't have, you know, super extensive uh, filmographies. The story is that rally car driver Zhu Tailang, played by Deng Chao, gets in a car accident with his estranged father, played by Eddie Peng, and he travels back in time to the 90s and meets a much younger and very different version of his dad from the dad that he knows. But when Tailang finds that his father is dating a girl who is not his mother, he feels he must take steps to rectify the situation. Now, if that's kind of the plot it's kind of the plot there's more to the plot but that's like one element of the plot um and in some ways the film is kind of all over the place in, in what it's trying to do and based on what it seems like han han has constructed here as writer and director um that that sort of the sort of patchwork feel kind of makes sense to me um that's not necessarily a good thing though so han han is fairly new as a director i guess he's better known as being a blogger a novelist. He is also himself a rally car driver, which I guess leads to the link to that aspect with the main character here. I don't know if this is completely self-referential in terms of his own relationship with his parents or not, but um, that's, I guess, an element that he's built in here based from, you know, his own life. Um, he has previous directing work, though, not extensive, but he's directed a film called The Continent, which I have not seen, so this is my first encounter with his directorial work. Kevin, I think you have a little bit more insight into who Han Han is through some of his blogging and writing. He's a bit of a controversial character as a writer, from what I understand, in sort of this post-80s thing. He's had some brush-ups with other literary people and things. But from what I recall in conversations last year, you guys tended to like The Continent, right? Yeah, actually, I think the Love HK Film Awards voted... The Continent as the top 10 films of that year. Um, a few of us are pretty huge fans of that film. Um, and and I've read Han Han's writing. He was much, he's, he's a very popular uh, blogger. He's a very, not controversial, but he's a very outspoken figure, especially on blog form. Um, his novels apparently are just okay, but he's a he's a he writes really he's um, sometimes inflammatory posts. He's a very witty person. Um, so the dialogue in the film is very Han Han, in many ways. Um, his father is actually a, a famous um, writer as well. I'm not sure if it was a film director or film writer. I forget, but <clears throat> in fact, he's, his father is such a uh, a well known figure that a lot of people um, um, have 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 rumored that. Han Han's films are actually directed by his dad hmm. <laughs> or written by his dad, not by him, because they're so good. Like, they're so abnormally good for a first-time director who's never touched film before. Yeah. Um, but but he does have a very good crew that, that surrounds him. But, yeah, Han Han, Han Han came in as one of China's most famous writers before he even became a director. In fact, that's why he got money to direct films, because he's such a famous writer to begin with. Right. And But, I mean, he's part of this sort of post- 80s generation um, that's kind of run up against the previous gen in terms of they do a lot of their writing, I guess, online. And there's some I've read that there's some, you know, contention as to whether they're truly literary people and things like that. Um, Again, it's that that argument. They've had this argument like between people who do online content and with directors like Wang Jing in Hong Kong. And even over here, people who make, you know, YouTube content versus sort of the traditional Hollywood um, Hollywood route that, you know, pe- people in older generations have taken. Um, well, I think even Han Han was one generation before the current one because he didn't publish any novels online as far as I know. He came, uh, he's the same generation as Guo Jingming, actually. Okay. So Guo Jingming aimed his novels at young girls while um, Han Han aimed his novels at sort of the more um uh artistically minded young people sort mm. of the 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 let's say the um um one's for, one is like an idol and the other is like a more more sort of uh, intelligent more literary right right so the more sarcastically artistically minded young people that that side so a lot of people uh han han fans mm. actually hate watching ming <laughs> because Guo Jingming is kind of that writing that young adult young young fiction young adult fiction um fan you know, girly kind of writing that 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 you know fans of Han Han would hate. Mm. 
Right. Um, so there was that field, and and but that's the, that's the one. At least they published their their novels on paper, you know, in a book. Whereas um, his the generation after him started publishing novellas on the internet. Right. Right. So yes. And so, so, so if you're not familiar with Guo Jingming, he's kind of the force behind. Uh, he's a creator films, of Tiny Times. Films like Tiny Times, that series, and and so sort of that, you know, aesthetic materialism, pretty people, that kind of thing. Um, is, is more that realm, um, which, you know, can appeal. I mean, there, there are some entertaining elements to those films um, in, in some ways, you know, so that I'm not trying to bash those films, you know, that it's, it's, but it is sort of, as Kevin says, a different side of the pendulum, I guess, in terms of the target audience. Um, this story here, as I said, um, it's, it's a time travel tale. And I think that narratively, for me, it was a bit less interesting than the contemporaries that it's been based on. If you go through to the end credits, there is a specific section where he gives specific mentions and thanks to films like Somewhere in Time, Back to the Future, Terminator, and uh, Peter Chan's He Ain't Heavy, He's My Father. And you can see elements of most of those films kind of scattered throughout this one. And as such, I said, as I said before, this kind of builds into that patchwork feel of ideas that are there, but the core material maybe overall I found to be a bit less engaging. I mean, again, ideas like, you know, okay, there's an accident or, you know, there's a car traveling back in time. It's not a DeLorean in this case. It's not the case of like Peggy Sue got married, but still it's that kind of element there. You're going back in time. You're meeting the parents here, and they're very different from what you expect in terms of the main character's relationship. That was a big part of He Ain't Heavy, He's My Father. Um, also, Back to the Future. There's a scene that kind of parallels a very famous Back to the Future encounter. You know, that one between Marty and one of his relatives. Um, they kind of don't do exactly the same thing, but again, it's close enough that, yes, the influence is there. Um, we know he's borrowed influences from these these famous works, and that's fine. But the rest of it that's kind of built around it, I just found it a little bit dull at times. And it may be that this film is very much culturally rooted in the era, um, which is the 90s. Um, and, and I thought it was like the late 80s, but Kevin clarified me that he actually found some elements um, in places that point to actually, no, it's more in the 90s. Um, and so here you're, you know, again, kind of building into the nostalgia for a certain era that speaks to maybe the post-80s generation or the post-90s generation. But for outsiders, this may be a bit harder to tap into. Um, <clears throat> and for myself, I found that, yeah, maybe some of these cultural aspects, I, I'm not keyed into um, a lot of them. And there's this drive, I think, in some mainland China films today to go back to this idea of nostalgia you see this in some of the films we've seen, um, like what was the Vicky Zhao film where they're all back at college? So young. Um, so young, you know, and then um, uh, American Dreams in China and these things which are kind of kind of going back to this pre-millennial period of, you know, being in school and, and being young again and, and, you know, before you are becoming an adult, this kind of thing. And this film's kind of tapping into that, that same kind of vein here. Um Production values are okay for the most part, but the film really kind of centers on the leads just trying to click, um, hanging out together, getting in trouble together. Um, a lot of that never really gelled very well for me. There's some editing issues in a few places, some pacing issues, and even uh, my wife who was watching it. She just you know would make comments to me on occasion like, you know, wait, why did they suddenly change to this scene? That just feels very weird. Um, but as it does try and, you know, sort of tap into this nostalgia, there is some requisite kind of references back to Hong Kong. There's a um, an idea of, you know, tying back to Hong Kong, Italian fat, you know, um, better tomorrow reference. Um, there's some karaoke musical cues. The fashion style of the era is kind of on display here, too. This is not really a sci-fi film along the lines of Back to the Future. There's no real technology uh, of any sort. It's much more along the lines of fantasy travel. So again, think somewhere in time or think um, uh, Peggy Sue got married or more specifically, he ain't heavy. He's my father. Um, 
and it's never really accounted for. It's never really explained how this can happen, why this happens. And it doesn't really matter in terms of the story they're trying to tell, I think. Um, but as it's, I don't want to spoil anything, but it as it's presented by the ending, something does occur, right? The, the, so it's not a case of, of um, you know, uh, some films might write this off as a, um, you know, as, as something that didn't happen, but this is not one of those films. Um, it, it, it does present this as something that occurs through a moment at the ending that I won't spoil. Um, so again, think of, think of the Peter Chan film and films that don't really care about the science fiction aspect, but really more of the fantastic, just a what if this happened kind of a thing. Um, the film shifts from comedy, which is loosely funny at times, to a couple serious moments, but overall it tends to remain fairly light. But again, for me, it just wasn't all that interesting. I never really connected the chemistry with um, with uh, Deng Chao and Eddie Pang. Eddie Pang is in old age makeup in, in sort of the modern era, um, which is okay, but he's too handsome, I guess, for it to come off as super convincing. And, you know, if, and again, if you think of the, um, the actor's name who escapes me, who was in Back to the Future, who played Marty's dad, um, you know, they did it to him. They did it to Tony Leung, um, Leung Ka Fai, and, and he ain't heavy as my father. So, you know, that, that can be hit or miss. It's a practical effect, and it, it's okay for the moments that it happens in. But most of the film, it's young Eddie Peng. <clears throat> excuse me. It's most of the film, it's young Eddie Peng that we're looking at. And him sort of palling around with uh, with Deng Chao, just it never really clicked for me, um, and it was something that I kind of wanted to click at a certain point, and just never, it never really got there for me. Um, I think that the, the, there's a young woman, a young actress, and if I'm going to get her name correctly, uh, as they have listed here, Zhao Ling Ying, but she goes by the English name Zanilla, Zanilia. Is that right, Kevin? <laughs> um, when you ask him, wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> so Zanilia Zhao, interesting name. Um, again, she doesn't have a lot of uh, credits under her name, but she was pretty effective in the film, I, I thought, um, as sort of the girlfriend of Eddie Peng's character. And some of the sequences that she's in, some of the interactions she's in are kind of fun, and I really wanted to, to see more of her. Um, but and, and beyond her, there, there are a couple... F- quirky characters um in places but and they try to do this kind of in in these time travel movies they 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 add some quirk into it there's a young actor who plays sort of a local gang thug and he has a couple moments that are pretty humorous because he's not he doesn't act very gang-like it's like he's he's not really sure how to do it and he, he ends up being kind of funny and a little bit endearing by the end um but there's also sort of a big bad a, a heavy if you will who shows up towards the end, cause problems. This, But I felt with such direct parallels to existing films that have already done this, who have already taken this route, that this film needed to be way out there on the wacky comedy level. I mean, way out there. So I think in the hands of like a Stephen Chow, looking at what he did with sort of the journey to the West and just taking that genre and, and pushing it way further, you know, than, than you would expect it to go, um, that they could have done a lot more with this film, um, you know, sort of just ramping up the, the zaniness of it, because you've already had films that have tried to do these sort of semi-serious nostalgia relationship with the parents, understanding the different generation, the generation gap, all of that. And it's just been done better than I think this film handles it. So had they decided to play with it a bit more, to be a bit more experimental with the comedy... And again, there's comedy here, but it, it's going to be hit and miss, I think, especially for an international audience. That being said, it's not a terrible film. I mean, it's 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 entertaining enough, and the leads handle it well enough. I just don't know if the chemistry is going to work for everybody. The one aspect that did kind of jump to mind pre ninety nine pre nineteen ninety seven Hong Kong is mentioned here as a narrative place for criminals to escape to. <laughs> so isn't you know that's the place we run to when we're in trouble. Oh, got to get back to Hong Kong. Um, so, you know, there, there you have it. Uh, the nostalgia of nineties in China was that Hong Kong is a, is a place for criminals. So that's great. Um, but yeah, it, you know, again, it's this film that if you like those other films that kind of play with this idea of going back and sort of meeting the parents, um, and, and dealing with it 
it you know this is a film for you again there's a scene where the the main character he's back in time and he's he's trying to explain to a police officer who stopped him and it's it's almost I'm, I'm i'm almost taken back to the mermaid in some ways right where you have that scene where deng chow is trying to explain to the police you know that he, he there's there was a mermaid and that whole sequence which you see in the trailer which is so zany and and kind of works so silly but it works so well it's like that was kind of what i wanted them to to go for they never really kind of go for it um to to that level and i think it might have worked a bit better if they had tried but it's out there and it's you know it's again it's it's got good production values and if you're somebody who's looking into that kind of nostalgic kind of feeling it, it never really achieves i think a peter chan level of quality but um you know it's one that you might want to check out um kevin you've seen this what were your thoughts on it when you saw it Oh, I liked it way more than you did, I think. Mm. I, I was really, in, like you said, it's really endearing. I, I thought it was really funny. And I liked that the fact that how you're saying how these people want to be gangsters, but they don't because they're in this small little village and they, they're influenced by Jawa movies and they all try to want to be Hong Kong gangsters, but then they're all kind of losers. And I really <laughs> like stories like that. And I find that really funny whenever they try to become like, <laughs> and then they keep failing. And I find that very funny. I don't know why. And it, there's a lot of that signature, you know, Han Han style sort of awkward, deadpan kind of witty wit in there that I, I really liked. I enjoyed it way more than I expected because I heard the reviews weren't very good and I thought it might be. And knowing the story is kind of like Back to the Future, I thought it'd be kind of conventional. But no, it was a very Han Han film, even though it was done on a very, you know, in a very commercial story. Um, and I thought the the, the chemistry between uh, Deng Chow and Eddie Pang were good. Um and no, I had a, I had a lot of fun with it. There was that one sequence involving um a uh the girlfriend character. That's yeah. really really fun. The outcome, the the the, the punchline of that scene for me was really funny. Even though you see it coming, but the way that he handles it in terms of sort of setting up the comic pacing of it and the way that the punchline is, it lands, I thought it was really really funny. Mm. So, so for me, the film worked, even though it's not original and it's it's not it's not as good as the continent. Um, I, I think it's a in terms of directorial skill, um, it's it's a good step up for Han Han, and I I would like to see him be a little bit more ambitious in the next film. But um, for now, this this will do. I, I enjoyed yeah. Duckweed a lot. There, there's there's a supporting character here who's kind of a you know an IT geek before IT geeks were a thing. Um, and, and, you know, it's again, it, it, if I remember correctly in like, uh, he ain't heavy, he's my father, right? The, the, the joke is that, um, one of the characters back in time, who's an associate of, of the Tony Lunkoff character turns out to be like Lee Ka Singh or something. The same kind of thing here too, you know, there was a character in Back to the Future who was like that, you know, it's like, they're going to be famous later on down the road. Um, do you know who that guy was supposed to be? Uh, it's uh, Tencent and WeChat founder Pony Ma. Mm. Some people guess that it was Jack Ma, the Alibaba Jack Ma, but but um, uh, Variety's Maggie Lee actually told me that she was corrected. It's actually supposed to be Pony Ma who, yeah, who found a Tencent. I thought it was Jack Ma yeah. at first too, but then I was like, ah, I'm not sure. It might be somebody else. So I, I'm glad I got some no. clarification on but that. But that's the where where Den Chow keeps telling him like where does this. And, and kind of a spoiler, but but you know that's how this is the kind of film it is. It's where um, uh, Eddie Pan character keeps telling telling his friends that you know the plan to get rich is stockpile pagers. You know, buy more pagers. Pagers <laughs> is gonna last. It's gonna last forever. <laughs> While this guy's like, oh, I'm looking to computers. Um, yeah. You know, and then and, and then the then Chow question in the future says, so, don't give up on computers, please. Don't give up on computers. <laughs> like, is that is that kind of is that kind of film? I thought that scene was also very funny. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. 
Uh, research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you would like to be part of the show, uh, do get in touch with us via our website. That's kongcast.com, K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. Follow us on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash kongcast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook at East S. West S. As always, I urge you to check in with Mr. Ma and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? You can come to my website. I am at asiaincinema.com. That's one word, Asia in Cinema. Uh, follow Asia Cinema on Twitter and on Facebook. Again, search Asia in Cinema and you'll find it. Um, you can read my work on Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazine. I'm the entertainment editor on those. And you can read my work on CathayPacific.com slash Discovery. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Or you can email me at Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. All right, excellent. So please do follow along with him. And also, if you are so inclined, please do uh, check out our friends over at Podcast on Fire. Both Kevin and I and I have guested over there most recently and should be on an upcoming melodrama season show. Um, so please show them a little love, if you will. Next episode, 227, uh, what will you be talking about for East Green, Kevin? I will be talking about the female-centric uh, comedy drama, uh, 29 Plus One. All right, excellent. And it looks like on deck, I'm going back into the Ridley Scott universe with Alien Covenant. And although I know this has already been out for a while, at the time of recording, it's not getting released here until tomorrow. But uh, I've kind of already spoiled myself with uh, friends who've been already ranting about this film. And so I'm not really looking forward to it, but I'm going to go see it so I can talk about it here next time next week. Um, Kevin, you're not into the Alien stuff, are you? You're not a big horror fan, right? I've watched all the Alien movies, but I'm going to wait until DVD or the screener system for this one because I don't watch horror movies in cinema, so uh, I'll probably also skip the Sleek Curse, the Herman Yao film, mm-hmm. just because of that. All right. Uh, so. yeah. Alright, so we'll be talking about that, all of that, and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying we wish you good viewing, as always, whether you're here or in the 90s, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody.